Good morning. Last week, hey, thank you. Last week we started this series called Vintage about hanging on to the things we can't give up. Now, vintage, what we decided, described it last week, the definition is what's always in. Some things are just old. Some things are vintage. Some cars, you look at it, you go, that's an old car. You look at another, you go, wow, look at that car. It's awesome because it's vintage. It's different. It's always in. Same thing with clothes. You look at some, some clothes in my closet and go, wow, that's old. Then you look at some clothes and go, no, that's vintage. That'll always be in. It'll always be stylish. Well, in this series, we're not talking about cars and clothes. We're talking about the church. This gathering of people that follow Christ together, what is always in? What's vintage? What should we hang on to and never give up? And we've talked about several things. And last week, we talked about this idea of looking at the early church, day one, like what did they do that we should still do today? A lot of things are done differently, but what should never change? Last week, we talked about what Jesus gave this commission to the early church and said, go and make disciples. Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples. And they took that very seriously. The way we do, and that's something we think is vintage. It should always be, and it should always be a practice of the church. If that's not something we do as a church, we should probably not be a church. That's vintage. It's always in. And in Matthew 28, he gives this challenge to go and make disciples. And the way we define what a disciple is, is it's an apprentice of Jesus who becomes more like Jesus. That's what a disciple is. An apprentice or a learner of Jesus who becomes more like him. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to be. In fact, that's our role is to be one and make some. Individually and as a church, we want to be a disciple and make disciples. Other apprentices who are learners of Jesus who become more like Jesus. And at Live Oak, our strategy for doing that, we talked about it last week, we talk about it a lot. We look at these things where Jesus taught about the great commandment, love God, love people. The Great Commission to go and make disciples. And this picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2, which was pivotal for us founding as a church 25 years ago. And we look at those passages and we think, <clears throat> in that, this great commandment, these great connections in the church early on, we see these connections, these great connections we call them. We want to connect ourselves and others to God, God's word, God's people, and God's mission. That's what we're about as a church. That should always be in. Well, today we want to talk a little bit about this first expression of the church in a different way and pulling out some vintage practices. And in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> this together piece, we see some things the early church did. We're going to look at several of these over the next couple of weeks. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. <clears throat> Verse 45, it says this. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And when they did that, it was contagious. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, we're going to zero in on this vintage practice of generosity. Verse 45, it says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Brandy just talked about how we commit to every November to spend some time thinking about some initiatives that we can give, focused giving to help across the street, across the globe, in the next generation. And we do that because that's what the early church did, and that's what the church should always do, is look for the needs in the world and be a part of it. 
So we want to give you some tangible ways to do that as a focused time. But really, we try to do that all year long. It's always a practice of who we are as a church. And today we want to talk about this practice of generosity. As a matter of fact, if you fast forward a few chapters in the book of Acts, as it's showing us the early church, this is how they were described in Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one at heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, except maybe like the 10-year-olds, because apparently that's a deal in our house. Like, that's mine, that's mine, that's not yours. Like, maybe, maybe even there, the kids got involved. But I would love to say it just infects our kids. It affects, infects me as well. Mine is a tough, a tough thing for this only child. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them to buy bigger houses and go, no, that's not what it says. They sold their house, sold them, and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This was just something they did. They had this perspective that, is there a need? How can I help? Not, there's a need. I'm so sorry. They, they were generous. They were selfless. And this idea of generosity is so a part of the early church, and I think it's vintage. It should always be that way because there will always be needs. And this first person that's the first identified giver, the first generous person in the early church, is this guy named Joseph, and he's so generous that he receives a new nickname, Barnabas. It says this in the next verse. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, uh, which means son of encouragement. And encouragement doesn't mean, hey, you look nice today. Encouragement means to infuse courage into somebody. His generosity infused courage into the disciples, into the early church, and it was contagious. He sold a field he owned, <clears throat> brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. What's really interesting about this passage, I love Barnabas. I think he's, he's one of my favorite people in, in Scripture. He's the guy that goes on to disciple the apostle Paul before he was the apostle Paul. There is no Apostle Paul if he doesn't, isn't discipled for years by this guy Barnabas. He was more than just someone who was a giver. He was a giver in more aspects than just money. He invested his life. He invested his faith. It was just a how can I help move the mission forward. And his investment in Paul was amazing. What's interesting is it compares this to the very next passage. There's someone who is kind of shady about their giving, and it doesn't end well for them. It's interesting that they can like them next. But what's really interesting for me is right before this, several of the disciples are arrested in jail. And the officials say, stop talking about Jesus. And they give them a couple of why I oughtas, or don't make me take off my belt. And they say, if you talk about Jesus, it will not go well for you, any of you. And they go back <clears throat> after saying, well, we're going to keep doing that, so we'll see you soon. And they go back. And they tell all the disciples, or all the followers of Jesus, the church, they go, hey, they've threatened to throw us in jail and kill us if we keep talking about Jesus. So let's pray for boldness to keep talking about Jesus. When they prayed for boldness, the first area you see them being bold was being generous. Because being generous, there's a lot of fear with that. There's a lot of baggage with that. In fact, 
if, if, as, as you started maybe putting it together, like, oh no, the preacher's going to talk about money. Like you felt something. Chances are, if someone ever talks to you about money and starts asking too many questions, you feel this kind of thing inside of you. You know why? Money's powerful. It has a powerful influence on us. And money's a big deal in the Bible. It talks about it a lot. Jesus talked about it a lot. As a matter of fact, 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus told concerned, were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. 16 of 38. In the gospel, an amazing one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, a little less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Why is that? It's not because God wants your money, but God wants something for you and knows that money can mess with you or money can do something to transform you one way or the other and maybe even making you more like Jesus. And I think generosity was a core practice of the early church collectively and for disciples individually, personally, because of this reason. Here's, here's one of the things I want you to think about today. What I do with my money honors God, changes me, and impacts others. How you handle your money, it will or will not honor God. It will change you one way or the other. And it will impact others also one way or the other. So let's think about that in several different ways. And what I want you to do is think about this phrase this morning. My money honors God, changes me, and impacts others. And God, just ask for you personally as a disciple of Jesus, if that's what you are. Say, God, Jesus, as a follower of you, would you disciple me in the area of money? What do you want me to do with what I have? That's all I'm going to ask. Here's some verses. Acts 20, 35. This is an interesting verse. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to... Give, then to? You know what's interesting about that verse? None of the Gospels have this verse in there. Might we have found a loophole that maybe I can receive and it's okay. Like, Paul quotes Jesus. And if you look at the Gospels, we never see Jesus saying this. But he was convinced as a disciple of Jesus, who was discipled by Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who was the first kind of giver of the church, who was part of this community with the disciples, he was convinced that it was in there. Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, but it's not in there. So most people think, well, Luke would have probably said, well, Jesus never said that. The early church thought this, this was something that Jesus said. Everything that Jesus taught is not recorded. He didn't have like some paralegal taking every word he said. There were four Gospel writers who... who carefully researched and gathered certain pieces and Luke felt like as I did the gospel of Luke I didn't include it here but he includes it here and he says yeah Jesus said this and chances are in your life you've experienced this to be true that giving does have this certain payoff or something that it does for us where we feel blessed Paul who was discipled by Barnabas who was discipled by the disciples 1 Timothy 6 verses 17 and 18 Paul is now discipling somebody else And he says, for the people that you lead, the people that you are trying to lead and shepherd, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth. That's why money's so powerful. It can make you more competent than you really should be, think more of yourself than you really should, 
and put your hope in something that really can't fully deliver everything that's needed. Why? Because it's so uncertain. Instead, put, your hope, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God provides you money, resources, stuff for you to enjoy life. But sometimes we go, well, that's my number one goal of what I have, to enjoy life. But he says a lot more about money here, but that's one of them. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, not just financially, but with action, and to be generous and willing to share. And that's described what the early church was like. And so it makes you kind of wonder, does that describe what we're like? Are we generous? Are we willing to share? Paul, writing to another church, said this in 2 Corinthians 8, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love, we have uh, kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Paul said, this is something you should be growing in as a disciple. Now, when the Bible talks about giving, there's typically three categories. One of them is this word tithe. One of them is an offering. And the third are alms. Tithe is basically giving a percentage. Tithe literally means 10%. Offering is something that's above and beyond. It's, it's occasional or there's something that's an offering to God, but I'm offering it. It's what Barnabas did. He sold the property and just gave it to the church. And then alms is in terms of giving to the poor. And so those three things are all covered in scripture and it talks about them a lot. This idea of the tithe is the one that sometimes people really wrestle with the most. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 and following. Now, they're an ag community. That's, that was their currency at the time. He speaks to them in that currency. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all your crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. And he said, here's why it's important. Doing this will teach you to always fear the Lord. This teaches us to put God first. So in my family, what me and Jennifer do, and this is because I was really discipled by my dad with this. I remember as a kid, before Dave Ramsey was even a thing, like we had envelopes and I had this book and I would get my allowance and I would put it in these different envelopes and there was give and save and then there were different categories. And I just grew up being taught by my dad more importantly, being modeled by my dad, when he would earn money, he would say, God gets what's first because I want to put him first. And he modeled that for me. In Malachi 3.10, it says, bring the whole tithe, the 10%, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So a lot of people say, well, it seems like it's an Old Testament principle. What about the New Testament? We live now in a post-Jesus resurrected world. How does that work? Let me talk to you about how I view that and let you figure out, again, what we always encourage you to think about. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? And what difference does it make? And chances are, if you're not doing a deep dive investigating this, it might be because, like, I don't necessarily want to find an answer. I want to find loopholes. Or I don't want to think about this. I would encourage you to think about this because money, it honors God, it changes you, and it impacts others. It's a powerful force in your world. And I would say in the Old Testament, it was considered a law. I think in the New Testament, it's a principle. And if you really want to kind of think about what Jesus taught in the New Testament, he didn't say 10% is mine. He said everything is mine. 
And if you think about it, that's true in your life. Everything you have comes from him. We are the recipients of every good thing that God has provided. Well, no, I, I put in the hours at work. Yeah, but it's the breath in your lungs that he gave you. It's the life that he gave you. It's the ability and the skills he gave you. It's the opportunity he gave you. Everything, it touches so many hands before it gets to us sometimes that we forget where everything comes from. It's his. And I think what this, this idea of percentage giving, of saying, I'm going to, with the first percentage, give it to him, it reminds you that everything comes from him. Because Jesus says, everything's mine. We're stewards, we're managers of his stuff. And as a matter of fact, if you go back to that bottom line, that how I handle my money, what I do with my money, honors God, changes me, and impacts others, that's actually not the right statement. It's what I do with his money, honors God, changes me, and impacts others. And how I view what I have, who I think it really belongs to, will determine if I have an open hand or a closed fist. If I'll be upward focused and outward focused or inward focused. This is why I think Jesus takes, talks so much about money. Because it has that big of an impact on us. And for those of you, and, and I know there are probably several of you that say, yeah, I do the 10% giving, and I give it to him first. Here's the danger of even in that. This is how powerful money is. I say, I, okay, I earn my money. I give 10% to God, and I say, this is my, my tithe to you. Do this as an act of worship to honor you, because I know I want to be obedient to you. I want to impact others. The danger is you think the other 90% is yours. This was my struggle for a long time. I viewed it as a tax. It's the God tax. And I became very selfish with the other 90%. And I viewed the 10% as, well, I have to. Or the God version of the IRS will get me. The thing I know about my dad is my dad is incredibly generous. Except when it comes to tipping for some reason. You have to kind of look over his shoulder like, I'm going to leave, I'm going to put an extra $5 bill down. I was like, ugh. Like, he's, he's, he's incredibly generous. He's incredibly generous. And I think it's because he didn't just assume that 10% was God's, even though he modeled that for me so well. I think he always viewed that all of it was his. And it made him into a generous person. And if you look at the Bible, if people had interactions with Jesus, they were on the receiving end of God's generosity. Jesus was generous to them, and their res result was they were generous to others. Because they recognize that all comes from God, it all belongs to God, and I want to honor him with that. What I would challenge you to do is first involve God with your finances. View how you handle your money as a spiritual discipline because it is spiritually impacting you every day. And I would say don't just involve him with your finances. Put him in charge and ask this question. What would my finances look like if God were in charge of it? And maybe turn it into a prayer and pray this. God, what do you want me to do with your money? It's his, but he's entrusted it to you. And a lot of it is to, and the Bible says this, for your enjoyment, to take care of the needs of your family, to, to live life, but also to be generous and willing to share. And he gives us this example of Jesus, going back to that 2 Corinthians passage, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. It talks about excelling in the grace of giving, and then it goes down and it says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing is, if you experience the grace of Jesus, you recognize how generous Jesus or God is to us. Like grace is God's just generosity poured out through Christ. That though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. Talking about the cross. Talking about showing up what we celebrate at Christmas. God with us who died for us. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. God is this generous God who pours his life out into us. And I think he knows that the work he's doing in you could have the legs cut out from it based on money. How you handle money. You're handling something that should have a big warning tag. And Jesus is this great model. And if you look at kind of history, what God has done for us, at creation, God created everything. We see that. And when we remember that, we recognize he owns everything. So we give back 10% back to him to acknowledge his ownership. There is a God. He's in charge. It's not me. It's all his. So I do that percentage giving first to remind me of that. And then there's the fall. Sin ruins everything in God's creation including how we handle money, our view of money, and our view of self because we become greedy and selfish. So for me, at times we try to push the 10% of our money to break the hold that materialism has on our lives because stuff will get a hold of us and if we don't manage our money, it will manage us. And then you look at redemption made possible through Jesus that we see in this passage. Christ came to redeem us from the curse of sin. And he gave it all so that through his poverty, we might become rich as a child of God. Therefore, we sacrificially model what Christ has done for us through the practice and grace of giving. And in 2 Corinthians 9, as Paul wrote on, he said this. He said, remember this, a little bit later in this letter. Uh, actually, go to the next verse. There you go. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's something about this honors God. It's an act of worship of giving. That's why a lot of churches, they pass the plate during the service. It's not the tip jar. It's not the tax. That's not tax day. It's an act of worship. We do ours, we have our offering stations in the back or you can give online. Because one of the things that Jesus taught about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is he said, be careful how you give. Don't do it so everyone can see. Don't come walking in with a big novelty-sized check. As a matter of fact, the one time Jesus singled someone out in worship and giving as a good thing, it was a widow who practically had nothing. And he recognized the sacrifice she was doing. He goes, she's giving everything. That's who we should honor. It's not about the novelty check the name on the building size donor that matters. It's what you're doing in your heart. And I think this, recognize who's in charge of my money is the foundational, fundamental issue in this. But he uses this analogy of sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly, the idea of seeds. God's given you financial seeds in your life. And the question is, you have two questions. It's like, what will I do with what I have? But the other question you always have to ask is, do I fully recognize who gave what I have to me? It's all his. It belongs to him. And throughout this series, we're trying to look at uh, passages and practices and the purpose of what's behind it, but also these promises. And if you go on in verse 8, it says this. He gives this promise about giving. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. 
Now he who supplies the seed. Again, who do you think it is? And what will you do with it? And bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. What God says is, I want to keep giving you. And this isn't like a, hey, if you give, I'll, I'll, I'll throw back a little your way. This isn't that. Some people turn it into that. There are some promises here about God provides. The thing is, God is grace as a grace-fueled God, who is a generous God. And we've experienced that. And what it, but this, this is for me is it's recognizing this is who God is all the time. But there is something that Jesus says. He goes, when God can trust you with a little, he will entrust you with a lot. What does that mean? God only knows, but this isn't, a, if you do this, God will get you rich. He's not a lottery ticket. He's not a get-rich-quick scheme but he is about caring about people's souls. And he recognized the more he entrusts to you, the more good it can do for you and through you or the more damage it can do to you. The bottom line, what I do with his money, it honors God, it changes me, and it impacts others. So for your finances, however little or a lot it is, for what you have, how are you handling it? Is God involved with your finances? Is he in charge of your finances? Is he honored with it? Is it changing you one way or the other? And is it impacting others? You know, how my dad handled his finances for me growing up, it impacted me. And I still to this day remember, and he still has this desk, it's this old roll-top desk. I remember him sitting down and writing checks. Checks were a thing you used to do back in the day, and you would write these things out, and it was a form of currency, that and grain and bartering and doubloons. Like, it was a thing. And I remember him writing it out. And you know what? He still does it today, even though he can give online. Now, I do my giving online. I do it this way, and I actually set up through recurring giving. Um, and the danger with that is that it doesn't feel like a must, an act of worship. Um, but every time I see it, it comes up the first thing out of my paycheck and my wife's paycheck. Because I wanted to put it first. But I remember, I think my dad still does it by hand because I think he wants to tangibly every time say, this is my act of worship and I'm going to do this first because I want to put God first. I'm thankful how he impacted me. It's impacting others one way or the other, directly or indirectly. And I challenge you to pray this prayer, God, what do you want me to do with your money? You know, as we talk about the idea of being a disciple in Matthew 28, it said, go and make disciples. One of the indicators Jesus said of a disciple was this in Matthew 28 teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I gotta be honest, as a pastor, I don't like teaching about money. Because I know what some of you are thinking. Like, I, I, I'm the beneficiary if you give here. I'm the beneficiary. I, I'm not paid on commission on what you give. As a matter of fact, I don't even know what you give. I don't know what anybody gives here unless you tell me. And several of you have told me because you wanna have conversations about strategic giving or sometimes it's a discipleship issue. I, I, anyway, I don't know what anybody gives here unless you told me. So I'm not, if, if you thought at some point in service I was looking at you, because I don't, I don't know, I, I don't, I, I promise, I don't know what you give, I, I don't know what anybody gives. But here's what I know, I know what you give matters. It makes a difference in our mission. But what I know is it's a discipleship issue. And Jesus said one of the, the only, one of the few indicators he gives in here, what exactly does a disciple look like? They obey what Jesus has taught. Obedience is greater than knowledge. So as, as a pastor, as someone who wants to make disciples, to make more and stronger followers of Jesus Christ, we have to talk about this. Because money, 
it will either one way or the other honor God, change you, and impact others. And at Live Oak, we talk about this idea of the four great connections connected to God, God's word, God's people, and God's mission. What I would challenge you to do is let Jesus disciple you on this. Spend time listening to what he taught about money. Engage it for yourself. Have a conversation with him. And financial generosity impacts all four of those connections of God, God's word, God's people, and God's mission. It impacts my connection to God because I'm giving to him. I recognize that I should involve him. I should put him in charge of my money. I'm discipled by him on money. I'm led by him to give. I recognize it's all his, and I'm just a manager, a steward, because it all comes from him. It's his. It impacts my connection to God. It connects my connection to God's word. If I read the Bible for very long, I have to do a lot of slaloming around verses to avoid the money verses. The Bible says a lot about money, a lot. And it says a lot about obedience. Apply what Jesus teaches. It, has, it infects my connection to God's people. We're reluctant to talk about money with each other because it's a very uncomfortable topic. But in the area of discipleship, I would encourage you to have somebody you can talk about money with. That's, that's, a, that's a wise, godly person. Preferably not someone on the receiving end of if you were generous, what that would look like. Someone that you trust, you can say, hey, here's how I'm struggling with money these days. We're more likely to do that when we feel like our bank account's low or we're in trouble, not when we're asking, how can I grow as a disciple of Jesus? It's connected to God's people when we're giving to the mission. When we're giving with God's people, it exponentially impacts the level of our giving, the impact of our giving. And then connected to God's mission, it moves the mission forward. And it's a way to participate in God's mission. This bottom line idea is what I do with his money, it can honor God, it can change me, and it can impact others. What I would challenge you to do is put him in charge of your money. And for me, percentage giving is just something we've always done. And I try to keep upping the percentage because it keeps my hand more, going more open and open. You know what's interesting about Barnabas, uh, the guy that was the first kind of recognized giver? A lot of people think, I won't say a lot of people, some people think, because biblical scholars love to sit around and think about stuff like this, hypotheticals. Some of them think, I think Barnabas may have been actually this guy in the, in, had an interaction with Jesus called the rich young ruler. This unnamed guy who is young and wealthy, and Jesus has an interaction with him, and he says, hey, you know what's getting between me and you? You need to get rid of all your stuff because you're worshiping money, not me. He goes, go get rid of all you have, then you can follow me. And the guy walks away because he said, I won't do it. Was Barnabas the rich young ruler? I don't think so. Because Luke tells the story, and Luke probably would have made, uh, mentioned him early on and said, this rich young ruler named Barnabas, actually it was Joseph at the time, comes and he says, well, I want to follow you, and Jesus challenges him and he walks away and a lot of people think that he had a change of heart. God changed his heart, changed his life. He comes back and then he becomes this giver. Well, Luke must be a terrible storyteller because I would have included his name early on because Joseph, closed fist, Barnabas, open fist. It's a great story. That's just what it is. But it's a great comparison. Am I more like the guy who would walk away from letting God do something in my life because I'm gonna say what's mine is mine or will I have an open hand Say, God, everything I have is yours. What do you want me to do with it? And if you're a manager of what God's entrusted to you, talk to the boss. Talk to him about what he would want you to do. And like we said last week, what I would challenge you to do is to take a next step. What will you do? When will you do it? How will you do it? Pick a percentage and start giving. 
Do something and get moving because if you stay still on this issue, you will stay stuck on this issue. And that's why every November we feel like we have this opportunity to actually take some steps to giving. And so in these giving initiatives we kick off in November, there are all these opportunities that you can do through Children's Home of Lubbock, uh, Lubbock Impact, and Operation Christmas Child. You heard about uh, Lubbock Impact. We partner with them year-round. As a matter of fact, if you give to the general budget, you already partner with us with Lubbock Impact because a percentage of what we get as a church goes away beyond the walls of this church. And Lubbock Impact is one of those uh, people we support, a group we support and partner with, not just financially, but with relationship. But there's several others that we want to talk about, and we'll put the first one up here, of things you can do today to step in. Operation Christmas Child. You can pack a shoebox. They're on either side of the stage. It's got a list. Pay attention to what it suggests to bring or or give or not to give. You bring that back uh, in a couple weeks, November 18th. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for that. You can bring it back uh, before our, it could be that night for our, our annual worship night. But pay attention to kind of some ways you can give through that. If we run out of shoeboxes, you can keep giving because there are tags, or you can go on their website and print it off. But this is a chance to impact a child, not just with tangible gifts, but with the gospel. They're very strategic in how they do this. There's also the Children's Home of Lubbock, a way you can uh, serve with time or give money, donate uh, to the Children's Home of Lubbock. This is a way for us to serve people to have a Thanksgiving meaningful meal of some people that have some needs and that need to know that they're not forgotten. And so for all these things, these ways that you can participate, including um, what we, uh, Brandy talked about earlier, the hygiene kits, there are a limited number of those. So once those are gone, we can't do those anymore. But all of these are opportunities. If you'd like more information, you have an insert in your program, or you can go to the Live Oak uh, app or website. Click, if you're on the app, click on the Give 2018 icon. Read more there, but have a conversation with God about this. Sometimes we're quick to give to a cause because it tugs on our heart. That's good. But what's better is say, God, I want you to have my heart completely. How do you want me to handle all of my money, including this, including every dime I ever ever earn, anything I ever spend? God, I want you to be involved because I'm a follower of you. It all comes from you. Money's a tough thing to talk about. It's a tough thing to even pray about because money has a powerful pull on our life and God can use that to transform you. So what I would challenge you to do is consider how does you handling your finances impact or honor God? How does it change you and impact others? And just pray this prayer. God, what do you want me to do with your money? Let's stand for closing prayer. God, I recognize that everything I have comes from you and I'm grateful for it. Uh, Even though I don't always recognize how directly or indirectly it got to me, I don't recognize that really you're the source of it all. I just confess that sometimes I'm forgetful. And the way it shows up in my life is a lack of gratitude, a lack of wisdom in how I handle finances and how I handle opportunities. So God, I just pray you would disciple me, you would disciple us to understand what do we do with these resources that you taught so much about, that you've warned us so much about, that you've encouraged us so much about. Thanks for the practice of the early church, of generosity, and how it caught the eyes of an unbelieving world that turn their eyes toward you. I pray the way we handle our finances would honor you, change us to be more like you, and impact others. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for being here. If you'd like to talk, I'll be down at the front.